Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Am I the only one that thinks it's funny that we're raising an offering today and the offering song was I Surrender All? (laughs) Uh, I mentioned in first service and nobody laughed, so I don't know. I thought it was funny. So we're thinking a little bit about uh, the pro-social virtues and practices that uh, connect us together and And uh, as we've thought about them, uh, we're just talking about four. There are obviously a lot more than that, but in this series, we're we're really focusing on four and uh, thinking about today gratitude and what that looks like. And uh, and so a couple things that uh, matter significantly this morning as we as we talk together, and that is I want to get you up to speed on some things that are going on uh, in the book of Romans and uh, and to think for just a minute, and, and maybe we could just kind of start at the end and then we'll back up, but uh, self-pity is very divisive and destructive. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm excellent at it. I thought it was my spiritual gift, but evidently <laughs> self-pity is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> and gratitude unites people. It, it brings us together, being grateful practicing the spirit. I don't think that's automatic. I don't think just because you pretend to be grateful necessarily it works, but I think I think self-pity pushes people away, creates divisive environments, and gratitude pulls people together. And so as you think about that, there's some things going on. Uh, what, when we think about the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, uh, Romans is an epistle, that just means it's a letter. Uh, and so uh, the epistles are not the wives of the apostles. We all know they are letters. So the New Testament is made up of gospels and epistles. There's just letters and the four gospels, and so kind of how it all works together. Uh, John's Revelation might be a little exception in that. You could call it a gospel, but it might be both. So, so what prompted the writing of this letter of Romans? Um, the church in Rome sort of started on its own. We don't really know about its origins. We have no real clear idea. We know that as Paul begins to interact with it, it's already in existence. And so we, we have to create some sense that we, we sort of build the pattern out of churches that we do understand how they were planted and how they grew. And there was a great dispersion after the resurrection, after uh, kind of the oppression of Rome. So early in the first century, we find a lot of Jews who are leaving uh, Israel and they are uh, settling around the world. Uh, and, uh, and so there are synagogues in significant numbers of uh, the great Greek cities around the world. And uh, when Paul begins to evangelize, he goes to the synagogues, and that's where he tells the gospel story. That's, that's what happens. And so we get sort of a conversion of Jewish people. And if you read the book of Acts, you know that that creates some hostility, and sometimes he's uh, beaten, and there's other things that happen in the, that ongoing storyline. So we don't know exactly who or how, but, but among the Jewish community, there is a conversion going on uh, to this new movement of Christianity. And along with it, not just Jews, but now Gentiles join in. And so the early church in Rome, and we're uncertain about its origins, we know that a couple of things have happened. Uh, the Jewish community and the Gentile community have come together, and they're growing in this new thing. And they're trying to figure out how Jewish they have to be. And if you read the New Testament, then you know 
that that's an ongoing conversation in the New Testament. In fact, James and Peter and the council in Jerusalem are really discussing. Peter sort of advocates for being more Jewish. Paul then becomes the voice for making it less Jewish, and there's a debate going on. And so that's a big thing in the early church, uh, is how Jewish do Christians have to be. And so over in Rome, which is kind of far removed from the conversation, they're just sort of doing it in real time. The Jews and the Gentiles are showing up together every week, and they're celebrating worshiping, and they're just figuring it out together. They're just evolving and figuring out what it all looks like. And then somewhere around the 5th century A.D., somewhere around 41, 40, 43, depending on who you ask, Claudius recognizes there's an uprising going on in Rome. And the uprising is at the instigation of one named Crestus. So what we assume is he's saying that among the synagogue, among the Jewish people, Christ is being taught and it's creating problems. And so he expels all the Jews from Rome. Acts 18, he tells the story. All the Jews are kicked out of Rome. And so uh, now you have this weird thing. And they're gone for a decade uh, to approximately 53 AD. Uh, and so uh, imagine now what's happened. So, so the Jews have been kicked out of Rome. Uh, they've lost identity. They, 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 they sort of band together. They're under persecution, so they band together. Uh, and in these 10 years, what we find is they become more Jewish than they were before. They, they become more solidified in their Jewishness. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Gentiles, who are still meeting in a Christian church back in Rome... They become more liberal. They, they become more, they, they are celebrating their liberty in Christ. And so uh, at the end, 43 AD, when, when uh, 53 AD, when the Jews come back to Rome, now the Jews have been on a different track than the Gentiles. Everybody still with me? Yeah. How many of you are asking at this moment, why do I care? <laughs> so they've been on a completely different evolutionary scale, and, and now they're all thrown together. This is the reason Paul writes the letter. He's writing the letter to bring these two groups back together. He's addressing this issue. Because now the Jews are upset at the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are upset at the Jews. So, so, so what this letter is all about, and what we consider in this letter, is that this is maybe, by far, it's not maybe, it is Paul's very best writing. Uh, it is the Summa Theologica. It is, it is the summation of all of his thoughts and all of his beliefs. And it has distilled over time until we get this magnificent letter that is incredible in its depth and in its scope. And so uh, as we kind of dive into it, then there's some, some structural things that are happening. Uh, we know that the first 11 chapters are sort of addressing his theology, why we are to behave ourselves, why we are to get along with each other, why we are to understand uh, how God works and what that looks like and what is sin and what is God and what is salvation and what is man. All of those questions are being answered in the first 11 chapters. And then as he does in every letter, he kind of comes to a point where he changes his tone and he turns his attention to how this all applies. Okay, here's all the stuff and now here's what it means. And, and we almost always are signaled in his letter because he says, therefore. Therefore almost always ushers in the transition and that happens at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, brother and sisters, I encourage you, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. So we know the ethical application is starting, so we pay special attention because at the end of 11, he's talking all through the chapter about the Jews and who they are now because he's talking to a group of people who have lost their identity. They used to be God's chosen people. They used to be the exclusive uh, conduit through which God was going to speak his truth into the world. But now the Gentiles are included in this mission. And, and, and coming off of this 10-year exile, they're trying to figure out who they are. And so we have this fascinating moment as he tries to sum it all up in chapter 11. And he comes to the end. And what he, now we know, we, he's going to close out this whole piece. And he's getting ready for the ethical application. He's going to turn his attention. He does a doxology. 
At the close of chapter 11, he does a doxology. And in it, he mentions some things that become really significant and important. If you're going to pay attention and you're going to apply all these things, you better know these things. And so it seems to me that as you think about that, it becomes a very significant turning point, And it might be worth reading. Amen? Yeah. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The doxology. Now, there are several things that, that are important as you kind of think about it. He's quoting Isaiah and he's quoting Job. And he is basically saying there are three important things that you need to hang on to. These are the three things upon which we will build all this application, and they're really important. The first one is, God is really, really smart. <laughs> Amen? He says it more eloquently. He is rich in wisdom and knowledge. That, that if we're going to come into this situation, into this chaotic moment, into this issue that's going on, we're going to need to have this clear in our heads. God is rich in wisdom and knowledge. Listen, this matters. This matters in our attitude. As we've allowed the image of God in our culture and in our world to sort of become, you know, a cosmic sort of grandfather that sort of takes care of everybody, and, and when he doesn't, we're disappointed. And, you know, Paul is saying, listen, that might help you relate to God in some ways, but you should know this. God is rich in wisdom and knowledge. God is God. He is, he is the one of whom we can think nothing higher, and it really matters. Number two, we're not always going to understand what God is doing. We're not always going to get it. God's judgments are beyond us. And so he says to us, listen, it's really important that these two things lodge in our brains. Now, Paul's not saying that it doesn't matter how we feel. He's just saying that somewhere in the depth of our being, we should be able to articulate this. I'm not always going to understand what life is doing. And that's okay. Because God is full of wisdom and knowledge, and I'm not always going to understand it. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And, and I'm just telling you, it's really hard not to be filled with self-pity when I'm not sure that God is full of wisdom and when I believe I must understand for it all to work out. Am I only preaching to myself this morning? Because God and I have this conversation at a very practical level. God, I, I want it to make, in fact, I'm pretty sure that the richest blessing in my life is when it makes sense to me. And as long as it makes sense to me, I can go through all kinds of difficulty. But you take away my understanding. You ask me to live by faith. You ask me to trust in your wisdom and knowledge. I get filled with self-pity. You know, why don't you do it a different way? Look at my wisdom. Why don't you do it my way? And you know, here's the truth. For a lot of us, our peace with God depends on how much we get it. I don't know about you, but I would rather not be the choke point for God's work in the world. I mean, honestly, if you just, if you just gave me permission to run my own life, I'd be like, well, I'm going to need to call in a consultant. Amen. I mean, I'll need to take a long look at that because I'm not sure I'm qualified to make it. I can make short-term decisions and feel fairly confident. I should 
report for jury duty. I, mean, I can feel good about that. But how is this decision I'm making today going to affect the life of my children in 20 years or my grandchildren? That's... And yet I still would demand of God that he explain himself to me. I would still emotionally say, but I'd like to get it. And there's a third thing. God is a source of blessing and goodness. Every good and perfect gift. We don't give to God, he gives to us. And that matters. It matters. James writes the same thought and the same ideas when he shares with us from chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. So, so Paul, in his doxology, as he closes out all this theological construct and he gets to talk about, about to talk about the application pieces, he says, so here's some things to know. And I want you contextually to pick this up. Oh, so you've lost identity and you're not sure who you are? I want you to remember that God is really smart and you're not going to understand everything, but he blesses your life anyway. Oh, there's some divisiveness and there's difficulty and you don't know how to fit everything together anymore and there's unity that's lost. Listen, God is the source of wisdom and knowledge and you're not going to understand everything, but it's okay for you to consider the blessing and to be grateful and to practice gratitude. That somehow he's conveying that in the midst of this difficulty, this issue of honoring God's wisdom, of understanding our limited, our limited knowledge, and practicing a sense of blessing brings things together. It puts things back together. You want to mend a family? Gratitude. You want to mend a country? Gratitude. You want to mend a church? Gratitude. You want to tear one apart? Self-pity. Make us the focus of wisdom. Make our understanding the limitation. Make self-pity the culture in which we live. And we get just the opposite. Just exactly the opposite. A few weeks ago when I was doing research for this sermon, I I was kind of, you know, fishing around and doing some research. And I went online, and I like to Google things, so I I Googled... Great gratitude stories. I had to put great in there because I didn't want just any gratitude story. <laughs> and so I read through a few things. And I got, a, I got a hit on Forbes magazine. And you know, I always like you know, to read outside the box of you know, Christian publications. And so I thought, oh, Forbes, that'll be an interesting article. So I flipped over to it. This is a guy's telling a story. And basically his father had died. It caused him these moments of self-reflection and and, uh, and so he remembered that somebody had recently given him, given him a book, and it was on a shelf, and it was, uh, um, it was a book that was written by a guy named John Kralik. And so uh, as I was reading the article, I was like, wait a minute. I have that book. I own that book. And I thought, but it can't be the same John Kralik. That's not. So I thumbed through the article, and... You know, just a little bit down, here's a photo of John Kralik. And I'm like, it's the same John Kralik. I have a copy of John Kralik's book because John gave it to me. Because John goes to this church. So I uh, couldn't find the book on my shelf. It's in a box somewhere. 
So I reordered the electronic version, and I just devoured the book. I just read the whole thing. And when I was done, I called John, and I said, John, I just finished reading your book. I really wish you would come and tell your story. And so John graciously consented. So would you help me welcome John Crayley? Do not become alarmed. I, these are not my prepared remarks. <laughs> so, uh, so, John, in 2007, you were going through a really difficult time. And uh, so tell us what was happening as 2007 drew to a close. Well, I, I am embarrassed about it, both because of how difficult the circumstances were and also because of how self-pitying and, and whiny I really was about it. But uh, I had worked very hard all year, uh, and yet uh, I had no money uh, to pay myself and had lost $30,000. I couldn't afford Christmas bonuses for my employees in the small law firm that I ran, and my uh, lease was running out. I had to find a new place to, to live. I was going through my second divorce uh, in the first divorce, you can blame it on the other person, but not so in the second divorce. And I was afraid of losing my daughter. And, you know, even all the bright spots in, in my life seemed to disappear. I uh, had a million-dollar verdict that I thought was going to solve all my problems. And uh, I was dating a, a, a nice young girl, and I thought that would solve all my problems. And then just before Christmas... A judge threw out the verdict, and uh, my girlfriend broke up with me. So I felt like I really was pretty lost. And, uh, judges are a, really a bane, aren't they? Really they they can be. They yeah. can ruin your life. John is a judge now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on top of that, so not only was it not going well, and the business was not going well, but you had you had left a law firm and started your own law firm because tell us why you started your own. Well, I was trying to do the right thing to 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 uh, bring principles that I'd felt in my whole life were important into the practice of law and to solve people's problems rather than make them worse. And uh, it, it wasn't going well because. Uh, you know, I thought because of this judge and also because uh, uh, some clients weren't paying their bills. So uh, it was a very difficult time. Yeah. So on January, New Year's Day, January 2008, you decided to go for a walk. This was the only time when I, I wasn't working because it's January 1st in Pasadena. So you, I had to uh, go up into the mountains and, and I climbed up to Echo uh, mountain trail past the hotel and then I just kept going I just wanted to get lost and I got lost and, and tired and at that moment uh, I heard a voice that said to me until you learn to be grateful for the things that you have you will not receive the things that you want and I, I did not I didn't know where that voice came from I didn't think it came from me because it's not a thought that I would have and I didn't think that I had anything to be grateful for, but they were very specific words. And I felt that I needed to figure out what to do with them. So you said as you were walking that day, uh, you remembered something that happened to you that your grandfather had uh, done and uh, a, a habit that he had. I think I thought of my grandfather because I was envying him. Mm -hmm. I was, he was about my age at that time 
uh, or had been my age, uh, when uh, he used to give silver dollars out to his grandchildren. And the thing was, if you wrote him a thank you note for this silver dollar, he would send you another one. <laughs> and now, I was not as smart as some of my cousins who figured out that you could get a small fortune this way, and some of them did, but I, I did not learn the lesson then. But for some reason, I thought I ought to learn the lesson now, and because I was losing my lease, I had this set of notes, which we probably all have, that had the address of my law firm that was going to change, and so I figured I might as well use up those notes. And so I came up with the New Year's resolution of trying to write one note, one thank you note a day for a year, for 365 right. days. So, so the, the book is called A Simple Act of Gratitude. Uh, it used to be called 365 Days of Gratitude, I 365 think. 365 thank yous. So you, so you commit on New Year's Day to write 365 thank you notes. How did it go? Well, of course, like all years, New Year's resolutions, uh, by January 3rd, I hadn't written any thank you notes. And <laughs> I still couldn't think of anything to be grateful for. But the woman who had broken up with me wrote me a thank you note for the Christmas gift that I'd given her. And I, I thought, wow, you know, even even the most miserable person got a few Christmas gifts. So I, I, I decided I would write thank you notes for all my Christmas gifts. And the first one I wrote was to my son. And I was very embarrassed because I, I didn't actually know his physical address, which was uh, you know, an embarrassment to me. But I found it, and I wrote him a thank you note. And he called me up, and uh, he said, Dad, can I come on over? And I Sure, and he, he came over and took me out to lunch. And then at the end of the lunch, uh, you know, a magnificent thing happened. He actually took the bill. And uh, I, I thought that was the most magnificent thing. But then he pushed across the table an envelope. And I said, what's that? And he goes, I am repaying the loan. And most of you make loans to your kids. And you don't think about them, but I had loaned him $4,000 at some point. And in this envelope, there were 4,100 bills. And my first instinct was to say, oh, that's okay, you know, just all right, you know. And uh, then I remembered that I really needed the money. So, <laughs> um, so I decided, you know, this was a, an event for him growing up. And uh, the next thought I had was, you know what? this thank you note thing really works. So, <laughs> so it encouraged me to keep going and to write all 365 thank you notes. And if you read the book, there are many times when I, I lost hope and uh, then was inspired by something to keep going. So, so you wrote thank you notes for, I love this part of the book, you wrote thank you notes to, for the Christmas gifts and then everyone else you could think of and you were two weeks in. And, and, of course, and you were out I of, felt you were like out I'm of, out of, <laughs> totally out of things to be thankful so for. So now the dynamic changes. Now suddenly you got a long way to go and you've committed to write a thank you note. So now you are looking for reasons to write a thank you note. Tell and, us how and, that happened. And I think that that was part of what changed inside of me. Yeah. Because, you know, every day I was going through and it was very easy to find the things to be upset about, to be angry about. Just getting sued made me very angry. And uh, here I was now looking for what was good in my life, you know, and, and that what the good things were. And there were good things all around me. Yeah. The 
waiters and waitresses that helped me, uh, the teachers who I had forgotten about, who taught me to do the things that I did. I found the teacher in, from high school who had, had uh, given me the confidence to write and uh, found doctors who had operated on me. I found the doctor who had told me to stop drinking, which was an important change in my life. And the more I looked around, uh, the more easy it was to find. I wrote thank you notes to my employees who hadn't gotten their Christmas bonuses, and I thought they would just, you know, get kind of angry about that. But they, they actually started writing thank you notes to each other and to me. And, uh, and we pulled together in an amazing way, and uh, they got their Christmas bonuses. And I wrote thank you notes to the good clients who were paying their bills. And I, left aside the people who weren't and, and focused on the people who were paying their bills. And I know for many of you, 2008 was a terrible year and uh, I, my biggest client was IndyMac Bank, so I, I could have lost them, but the, the fellow who paid my bills at IndyMac uh, actually put up my note on his bulletin board and my bills would always get paid first after that. <laughs> And, and, in, and then when the company broke up, he started his own company, and I had a new client. And, and so I actually had a, a good year. And uh, like I say, the transformation, I think of it in terms of, you know, people would ask me, how are you doing? And up until that moment, I would give them part of my sob story, part of the tragedy that I was writing in my own mind about my life. Uh, but now I was doing something. It was just a small, tiny thing. I mean, I think of thank you notes as a small, tiny thing that we can do. Uh, I think of it as the anti-tweet. It's something you can only <laughs> say, uh, it's an expression of gratitude and love, and then sign your name. There's no room for anything else. Yeah. And, uh, and you have to write it yourself. No machine writes it. And, uh, and, and so I was responding each day when people would ask me this instead, with something good, something my daughter had done, something that had happened that was good to me. Yeah. I love the part of the story where you uh, write a note to your barista at Starbucks because you're trying to come up with who to thank. Right. And their response to that was they were, they were terrified that you were, now they thought you were a nice person and now you had sent them a disgruntled letter. They had no concept that someone would take the time to not write something that's not negative. So. Right, and they were worried that was going to corporate or something. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, when I was telling you that, that this, when CBS News was checking up on my story to make sure it was all really true, they tracked down that barista. And as it turned out, uh, there was a barista who had a copy of my thank you note. And what she said to them was, look, you know, I wonder each day whether what I do really matters. And when I got this, I felt that what I did really matters. And for me, I was uh, really feeling like my life didn't matter. I was going to throw it away. And uh, all these people were reflecting back to me that it mattered. Yeah, yeah. So, so now that you've come through this process, and by the way, I recommend you read the book, but uh, you've continued in this process, you've continued it. So you, you collected a little something uh, as I guess getting ready for this day today. Yeah, well, you know, my life has just been blessed beyond measure. And, uh, you know, my beautiful daughter now goes to Michigan uh, and my alma mater, and somehow God gives me the ability to pay for it. And uh, 
the most amazing thing that's happened into my life is, is that I met Catherine, who's here today, and so we don't need a picture for you to see how beautiful she is. <laughs> but Catherine brought me into this church, and uh, five years ago we were married by Dave. And uh, my son, who paid back the loan, has paid back several loans since then, and I've had the privilege of marrying him, and last week I got to hold uh, my first grandchild. So uh, my life is just blessed beyond measure. In the book, I talk about how I tr kept a spreadsheet of, and, and last week in getting ready for this, I, I was going to print it out, and then I realized I couldn't do that on uh, county uh, on the county dime, uh, so I had to take it to, to uh, FedEx. And uh, $47 later, this is the spreadsheet of the thank you notes I, I've written. They're, they're, I'm getting close to several thousand now. Um, and these are all the good things that have happened in a life that I didn't think was going on, worth going on with. So I think what happens is, you know, in, in the good things in your life multiply, but also the life that you have, you realize how good it actually is. And that's where, where I was really failing and failing to see what, what was really good in, in my life. Amen. Would you guys just say thank you to John for sharing his story? So uh, John brought uh, several copies of the book that he wants to give away. Obviously, there's not going to be enough to go around. And so he suggested early, he said, hey, if you just want to, you know, uh, give them away for a donation to the building fund, you can do that. <laughs> but we decided not to do that. So uh, there are a few out there you can ask, but you can go online. They're available. Uh, John, somebody said, tell us how to spell his name, K-R-A-L-I-K. Uh, uh, and so you can get a hold of the book. It's still out there on Amazon and other places. And it uh, uh, doesn't mean, you know, I, I, I think that there's a principle out there about the, you know, uh, attraction. If you practice attraction, you know, good positivity attracts positivity. And I don't really believe in that too much. Uh, I think sometimes those kind of books get traction because they reflect a biblical principle. <laughs> and the biblical principle they reflect is this, self-pity is divisive and destructive. And gratitude draws people together and creates unity. And that's true. That's true in our businesses. It's true in our home. Now, I'm not saying that if you write a thank you note to your child, they'll pay you back. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> but I, I do believe it is so vital for us. And I, and I, I go back to where Paul is in this letter. I mean, Paul is saying, we, we've got this massive global socioeconomic thing happening. And how are we going to mend what has been broken by decades of bad politics? How are we going to pull together these people who are being pulled apart theologically, culturally, racially, ethnically, politically? And, and he creates this doxology that says it has something to do with this. God has great wisdom and knowledge. And I'm not going to understand everything. But I will live with an attitude that he is the giver of blessings. He is the giver of goodness. I will walk around in that reality. I will celebrate that reality. 
And as we think together and talk together about what it means to celebrate the doing, I believe one of the things I loved about the article in Forbes is the guy says, I have always been thankful, but I have never practiced gratitude. Because if we went around the room and said, are you thankful? We'd always, oh, yeah, I'm thankful. But being thankful is not the same thing as practicing gratitude. Being thankful happens up in your head. And isn't it funny, because I was thinking as John was talking, you know, I should start writing thank you notes, but I'm not going to now because we did this in church and people will just think I'm just writing thank you notes because we did it in church and John said, and I'm not going to really do that because that would be weird. I don't want to be, you know, last thing I want to start appreciating people. That would be weird. <laughs> Am I the only brain that does that? You thought what I was thinking about when I was sitting here? That's what I was thinking about. You know, I should write and I should write our employees thank you notes. Nah, they would just think I was doing it because of John and they owe me money. <laughs> but isn't it funny how there's a stubbornness in us? There's something in us. We are, we are so prone to the antisocial behaviors and so reluctant to engage in the prosocial behaviors. Something just as simple as saying thank you and being grateful makes us feel weak or small or silly or what will they think of me? As long as I'm cynical, they think I'm smart. But if I actually practice gratitude, they might think I'm weak. Is it just me that thinks like that? So as we think about this question, how is your doing? Maybe in your brain you're thankful, but how do you practice gratitude? And what I love about this is it's just like 365 days of writing thank you notes, is gonna, it's going to be work. There would be work involved. There would be an effort. There would be a place where your brain has to start... Your eyes have to focus differently. Your mind has to work differently. You have to think about, what am I going to do differently? I'm looking. You'd be so thrilled when somebody does something that's worthy of a thank you note. <laughs> ah, good. I know what I'm going to do today. <laughs> Amen? And don't you think that's the transformation? The transformation is, I'm walking out into my world. I'm walking out into my life. I'm looking at my family. I'm looking at my children. I am hoping they'll do something I can write a thank you note for. And that's how practices really impact us. Because <laughs> as long as it remains in my head, <laughs> I'm not searching, I'm not looking. There's no task, there's no deadline, there's no deliverable. I can just assess in my brain, yes, I'm thankful. Does anybody know? Does it impact the world? Does it change anything? But to practice gratitude gets it into the real world. As, we, as I have every Sunday of this series, I want to close by reading Richard Foster's quote one more time. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You become weary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then you've caught glimpses, hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that's poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where He can bless us. In this regard, it is proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. It is grace 
because it is free. It is disciplined because there is something for us to do. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for John, for his story. We're thankful for Kathy for the way you have mended and blessed and healed so many pieces of their story and their life. And we recognize that you invite us into space in which we celebrate and participate together. And I'm praying today that as we close this service and we continue to think about gratitude, that there would be a very specific response in each one of us. That we wouldn't just think about it intellectually, that we would challenge ourselves. And maybe 365 thank you notes is not the challenge you're laying on our hearts. But perhaps there are very specific things you're asking of each one of us. And so in a moment as we close the service, as our prayer counselors move into place, maybe there are those that would seek out a place to pray, a commitment that they would like prayer for. Maybe we'll just respond together at the close of this service. Maybe we'll send an email or contact a pastor or whatever the way in which we choose to respond, I pray that each one of us, 100% of this family, would respond together to the practice of gratitude. I pray that you'd teach us and lead us, and I ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. amen. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to give Kathy and John a little time to move to the back so you can talk with them and greet them. And then I'm just going to invite you to think about this day and what it means and how you'll respond and what that looks like. So would you do this for me? Would you go in gratitude? God bless you. Thanks for being here today. You're dismissed. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.